welcome everyone to Heart of the Matter podcast. I'm Chris O'Connor, Principal Investigator of the Heart Failure Collaboratory, and we're very excited to be talking about data safety monitoring committees, why they're necessary, how do we get people engaged in the participation and the training of the next generation. And I'm here with three of my favorite distinguished colleagues. I'll let them introduce themselves. It's David Demetz. Hello, yes, I'm Dave Demetz. I'm Professor Emeritus of Biostatistics at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And I've uh, now gone through my 50th year of clinical trials in various capacities, but I still find it interesting and, and a very worthwhile exercise. Thanks. Tom Fleming. And Dave, approaching middle age, we need you for another 50. I'll <laughs> <laughs> <I'm laughs> try. I'm Professor of Biostatistics at University of Washington in Seattle, um, and it's a real pleasure for me to be here with Janet and Dave and Chris to talk about these really important issues around monitoring committees. And Janet Wittes. Janet. I, I'm Janet Wittes. I'm delighted to be here, and I'm really happy to be part of our failure collaboratory. I am right now uh, simply a statistical consultant, but I've been involved. I realized my first DSNB was in 1976. So it's been a long, long time. Well, data safety monitoring committees are, there's a mystique about these committees. They've been run and chaired by a small group of people that uh, as clinicians and clinical investigators, uh, we've had the utmost respect for, but it's a it's a committee that has this cult, that has this culture of uh, maybe a narrow inclusion. And so, David, I'm going to ask you to uh, start off the conversation. And why do we have data safety monitoring committees? And why are we here today talking about the challenges of the next generation? Well, thank you, Chris. Well, the history of a data monitoring committee, or sometimes called data safety monitoring boards goes back to the mid to late 1960s. The Helsinki agreements talked about you can't, you shouldn't conduct a trial any longer than necessary and always monitor the risks and benefits. That was followed up by an NIH-sponsored report called, the, which we refer to as the Greenberg Report, that took place in the, in the, in the late 1960s, wasn't published for 20 years, but nevertheless, everybody knew it was around. But it also called for the PAC to keep an eye on clinical trials and not let them run longer than necessary to monitor the risk to benefit ratios. So we've been doing this process since the late 1960s, certainly in the early 1970s, when they began to become the, the standard way of proceeding across different NIH institutions. But I think we have, many of us have become aware in the last uh, uh, five years or so that the number of clinical trials that are using data monitoring has simply exploded and we became concerned that the number of people who had the experience that we were fortunate to have was not keeping up with the demand. So there's a, a big supply and demand gap that we have to recognize and, and pay attention to. And there are issues if you don't have properly trained data monitoring ways, as Tom and Janet can attest to. Janet, what, what are those issues? I mean, this is part of the why. What are the issues that David is alluding to? Well, I think there are many issues, and I want to think about three kinds of people. There are the people, there are the sponsors, there's the people who present to the DSMB, and the the DSMB members. And all of them have to really understand what the purpose of the DSMB is and how best to perform as DSMB members in, in this whole culture. 
in my experience, there are lots of sponsors who don't really understand what the committee does. And they're actually, they don't trust the committee because it's this silent body outside and therefore are loath to give the committee the information it needs to make intelligent recommendations. And then there's the, the people who are presenting the data, the data to the committee. And some of them don't know that you have to present data in a way that allows the committee to make recommendations during the course of the trial. And those reports are different from the reports that you see at the end of the trial. And then finally, they're the DSNB members. And I just had an experience very recently where a DSNB member, not understanding the difference between a DSNB member who has to keep things confidential and a consultant, just spilled the beans what the DS, the DNCC was saying, spilled the beans to the sponsor and therefore jeopardizing the integrity of the trial. Mm -hmm. So all three groups have to learn what the DMC is and how to run it in an effective way. Tom, what are, what are your thoughts here on the on the why? Well, it's, um, you know, but kind of before getting into a bit more of where we need to go today, um, just to expand a bit on what Dave and Janet have said about the why, um, the mission of the monitoring committee is to safeguard the interests of study participants. And certainly that includes overseeing and protecting their safety. But it's also to protect the integrity of the trial, to help enhance the sponsor's efforts in protecting trial integrity. Um, and a bit of an anecdote about that experience uh, from my involvement. As Dave mentioned, the Greenberg report in, in the mid-60s introduced the concept of data monitoring committees. And over the next decade after that, they became more frequently used in certain areas within NIH, um, cardiovascular area and, um, and, and the Eye Institute. But they weren't yet uh, used widely elsewhere. Um, in the oncology setting, we started to implement data monitoring committees for all of our studies in the North Center Cancer Treatment Group in 1977 to 84. And uh, interesting experience I had when I then moved to the Southwest Oncology Group to the University of Washington in 1984, I approached Chuck Coltman and John Crowley, the head of that group, to say, we need to keep data confidential, <laughs> motivated by what Janet and Dave have already talked about uh, during the course of the study. And they both agreed that we should do this to protect trial integrity, but they said, you're going to need to have the leadership, the, the steering committee agree. And I'll never forget one of the thought leaders on the steering committee said to me, wait a minute, Fleming, you want us to not share all the data from our ongoing studies? He said, what are we going to do at our steering committee meetings? Play tiddlywinks? <laughs> and I said, well, he said to me, if we're going to do this, you need to tell me scientifically why. And I said, absolutely on target. We should do that. And so we took the experience in the seven years from 77 to 84, when we had protected confidentiality in the North Central Cancer Treatment Group and only shared the data with the monitoring committee versus what happened in the Southwest Oncology Group from 77 to 84. We matched them up by major colon adjuvant, breast adjuvant, lung adjuvant studies. There were 10 in each group. And in the cooperative group, in, in the group that shared data routinely, SWOG, there were five of the studies that ramped up and then trickled away, and many of them could never be finished. Whereas when the data were kept confidential in the North Central Cancer Treatment Group, they ramped up and they stayed. And so the North Central Cancer Treatment Group, by having confidentiality, avoided the prejudgment that protected the ability of the trials to be successfully completed, and also avoided 
early data that were released that were misleading in those settings. And about three years later in the Southwest Oncology Group, after we implemented this approach, that steering committee member said it was the best thing that had ever happened to the integrity of the steering committee. We were now using our time, not talking about what happened in the first 11 patients on a study, but making decisions on reliable evidence and protecting the integrity of the studies. So this is just one anecdote of the why. You know, what what is so important? Yes, it's safeguarding patient interests, but it's also protecting trial integrity and avoiding breaches of confidentiality that Janet now is just talking about in her experience that was problematic. I can just quickly add to that experience a couple of recent experiences that I've had where people say, okay, Fleming, we get it. We're going to keep data confidential. But what happens in a study that is looking at early data for registrational purposes, but then for accelerated approval, for example, but then later data to get the true clinical endpoint results? And we've, we continue to run into circumstances here where there's not an adequate understanding that the monitoring committee needs to keep, have sole access to emerging data, even on those long-term validation endpoints to avoid prejudgment. Well, that, that that that's such a great analysis that you did that that just gives us the the data, the information to say the why. The why is good. Right. It's it's not speculation, Chris. There's a lot of evidence that we have over time of seeing what happens when you have a monitoring committee and you're preserving sole access. And that's critical, especially for registrational trials, to maintain their integrity. You know, one but, one of the things oh go ahead, Janet, please. But it's not sufficient to have the monitoring committee. It has to be a monitoring committee that really understands what it's supposed to do. Well, and that we're going to get to that because that's where my fear is, and that is that there's a small group that know this, and we we got a larger group that uh, are yes raising their hand. They want to get involved, but they don't have the experience yet. But let's talk about some of the transitions of monitoring committees. I mean, I. David, in that beautiful introduction lecture you did for on the website of Society of uh, Clinical Trials and now on the HFC website, you talk about the monitoring committees during the coronary drug project and you had, you know, six drugs and you stopped two and you continued to. I mean, it was unbelievable. I don't know if the stopping rules today would have been the same as the stopping rules back then. Uh, I, I would. That's question one. But one thing you've done well as, as leaders of DMCs is that you've figured out that sponsors sitting in these committees is probably not a good thing. And you've been able in the private sector to put that wall there. But the NIH, you know, the last NIH trial I did, I had project managers sitting there and, you know, listening to everything. And uh, they're the sponsor. They're writing the checks to us. David, how come you haven't made any progress in that space? Well, I have uh, experience of having sat on both sides of the table in my career. If I spent 10 years at the National Heart Lung Blood Institute, I think we've become more sensitive over time about many issues. That's one of them. And I think we've also had experiences where sponsors, whether they be federal or private, have not uh, have intervened, if you will, in a, we consider the monitoring committee's business and caused problems for the monitoring committee as well as themselves in the study. So we've learned over time. But I want to go back. The Coronary Drug Project it was, a, was a great teaching uh, venue. And if, if people have not read those papers, they need to go back and take a look. 
the statistical methods that I claim, and Tom and Jack can comment and criticize, I think the philosophies are all laid out in those trials. We've added some statistical sophistication, no doubt, since then. But they laid down a lot of the principles that we still adhere to today. And so as we thought about the gap and how we were going to try to close that gap, I think we all realized that there was no organized process by which to provide that training. It was on-the-job training, which is not adequate in today's setting. And so fortunately, we were able to with the blessing and help or support of the Society for Clinical Trials, retrieve uh, three or four workshops that have been put on that happened by pure chance, I guess, to be videoed. And so with a lot of uh, uh, help and volunteer work, we got those videos recovered, and the Society for Clinical Trial was willing to put those up on their website and now accessible through the Heart Failure Collaborative. And in addition to that, we were able to record some of our clinical colleagues as to why they participate and what value they see. So we have uh, several testimonies, if you will, of clinicians who participated in, in clinical trials and, and why people should want to want to train and do that. So we have now a menu of videos. Uh, the three of us on this, on this Zoom recording uh, were part of that, but there are others. So we have that available. And we also, in addition to the training, we said, well, we also need to have a registry of, of who has experience and who would like to get experience, and so we can you can raise your hand, declare your interest. It's not a it's not a certification process, but at least it provides people who are interested. And finally, we realized um, that we needed to have a mentorship program. It's one thing to have the didactic training, but also to have seen one live and 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 get that experience. So we also call for a mentorship program. And that's, I think, a, a challenge we are, we have written about and are talking about to have more buy-in on the issue of, of having mentorship. But in general, we are we are on the move, and I think we're moving in a positive direction to uh, to try to close that gap. And I think it's, it's fantastic that the Heart Failure Collaborative has stepped in and, and provided a wonderful workshop. I guess it was last June 12th, which you referred to, and we're planning another one, I, I gather, I'm hoping. That's good news. And the even better news to me is that other groups that are hearing about this say, how can we get involved? So that's exactly what we want to have happen is that we get this wide, this training program widespread. So I'm looking forward to the future. We've got a lot of work ahead of us, but it's so darn important, as Janet and Tom have said, if it isn't done right, you can actually do a lot of a lot of harm to, to integrity of the trial, to actually to the sponsors, and of course, most importantly, to the patients who put time and their own bodies as an investment, hoping to get an answer. And if we mess it up, then their, their, their investment is also wasted. So everybody has a stake in this game to do it right. So we say great thoughts, Dave. Um, training the next generation is really critical. We need you. <laughs> uh, data monitoring committees, as Dave and Janet have indicated, have now been widely implemented and, um, and we continue to need people that will be involved, that have the background, clinical, and quantitative expertise, uh, and then can bring those skills forward and be involved in data monitoring committees. And Dave's really laid out the aspects here of what he refers to as the didactic and mentorship or apprenticeship aspects of this. And as he's indicated, didactic is important. There are many aspects to it. Um, there are many articles. There's Engelbert Fleming and the Met's textbook and other textbooks. There's the short courses that that Dave just mentioned that the Heart Failure Collaboratory had just 
uh, organized in, in on June 12th, and we'll be having a, another one in the future. And as Dave mentioned, there are now these um, these presentations, these lectures that are online. Um, as he's indicated, though, as I, if I often say, uh, Chris, if I'm going to go up on a small plane with you and you're the pilot, I'm going to ask if you've actually been involved in doing more than just reading a book about it, but you've actually been involved <laughs> going up with an instructor. Um, that experience, that actual real experience matters. And Dave refers to that as the mentorship aspect. But if what we're saying is we want everybody to be experienced on monitoring committees, then we're not growing the number of people who will be involved. And so we want the committees to be collectively experienced in the DMC practice, but to be heterogeneous in that so that some are new to the DMC process. Everybody is a full member on the monitoring committee, even if you're coming in without experience on monitoring committees, you're bringing in important clinical and quantitative expertise. But you are then in a group with others who've had the experience. You're going to be um, part of a process and learning from the DM from your colleagues about those DMC processes. So it's a really important step that sponsors need to be thinking about. And we can do this if we have a study of a COVID vaccine and we have a cardiologist and infectious disease doc and a pulmonologist. Oh, okay. One or two of them have expertise in DMCs. But often we have a single biostatistician. Uh, well, I'm not sure why that is. You know, we should have committees with two, where one of them is a Janet Wittes who knows a great deal about the data monitoring committee process and someone else who will be there as a full member, but learning a great deal from Janet and others on the committee. And so this is the process that Dave's talking about. And, and Dave has been leading an effort with Society of Clinical Trials in being able to facilitate the ability for people who are interested to put their names in and to be able to be known to sponsors who are setting up these committees. That's really a terrific point. We've talked about young clinical investigators, seasoned clinical investigators, but we assume that the biostatisticians magically have all that knowledge, you know, when they graduate from their programs. And that's not the case. So I, Janet, I like the idea of two biostatisticians, a senior or junior, just like we're talking about with the clinical investigators and clinicians on these committees. What are your thoughts there? I think it's really important. One of the words we haven't said today is that on a DSMB or DMC, what you have to use is judgment. Expertise is really important and you need it. Experience is important, but there is this, this element of judgment that comes that comes from discussion in the in the committee and and i think it's very important for young statisticians to see how how the interaction works with everyone and how each person trains the others in their areas of expertise i was fortunate enough in the cdp in the coronary drug club i was a postdoc for jerry cornfield who was one of the people on that committee and he said to me I've got this really interesting committee. Would you come and just come join me? And there was an informality about it in the old days. Anybody could come. You were just told, keep your mouth shut. Now it's much more formal. And we have to have, given given the decades of experience, we can't just say to somebody, come, come to this interesting meeting. We have to have a structure for training and for mentorship. But I think it's really important for statisticians as well as clinicians 
to have experience and therefore to be for the committee to have more than one statistician on it. There, there are other constituents that need to learn about DMCs that we, we, we've touched on in our, our June 12th meeting. But one I've seen emerging, and I'd like to get the opinion of this group, is patients. Should patients' voice be on a DMC? David? I had the privilege of serving on a, a, veteran, a VA uh, clinical trial operation, and they were very insistent on having a patient representative on the committee. And I, I think that they did add. They obviously didn't have the technical expertise, but they too learned, just like we all learned from each other. They learned from what our statistical issues were and clinical issues. And so they were very sensitive to how a patient would actually view what was going on. We all worried that somehow they would not be able to, to uh, you know, uh, keep the confidentiality of the data and so forth. But I didn't see any particular uh, case in, in, in my experience that was a problem. Some the NIH, for example, sometimes added ethicists uh, to the committee, who are supposed to represent the ethics of the trial as well as the patient representative. Probably as good a job as they do, they still don't represent the patient representative uh, totally well. But I think hearing at the patient's perspective is is really important. You know, Tom and I served on the AIDS clinical trial group for a, a bunch of years, and it was a, a lesson uh, of clinical trials 101 because all the issues we thought we were we knew were raised again in a different context, in a very sensitive context. But it turns out that the patients were absolutely critical. They did not sit on the DMC formally, but they became aware of what it is the DMC did and began to defend us as, as not being a, a problematic, but being critically important to the integrity of the trial. And that was a 180-degree turnaround once they understood exactly what it was we did. So educating the, the participants, the patients who have something in stake here is, is important to get their support. I'd like to say something oh, about, yeah, about ethicists because I have learned so much from some of the ethicists on the committees. Sometimes you're faced with a real dilemma. The data are showing harms and benefits. You don't know how to make judgments. So sometimes the issues are very complicated. And I have found it remarkably helpful to have somebody who's formally trained in ethics to be able to walk us through how to think about what these issues are. So everybody comes with a different set of skills and insights, and, they're, and as long as everybody participates, they're very, very useful. And just you know, to add, uh, go ahead, Tom. Yeah, just to add to what um, Janet and Dave were saying, when, when uh, Dave and I were involved in the it was from the late 80s for the next 20 years, actually, on the monitoring committee that was overseeing the NIAID clinical trials and therapeutics for HIV AIDS. They were being conducted by the AIDS Clinical Trials Group and the Community Program for Clinical Research in AIDS. And as Dave was describing, there was significant membership involvement and integration with ethicists and with, with patient advocates. And it was a real benefit to us mm -hmm. and what made it more possible was that the committees were somewhat larger. And because we were looking at it, we were overseeing a program of trials. I think in my 20 years on that, we monitored, I think, 60 trials. And so it allowed us to be a bit more efficient by overseeing a program. And it made it then more feasible 
to have a somewhat larger committee. And by being larger, Chris, we were able to be more inclusive, more diverse. Um, and it was a real advantage. I would say, though, to sponsors in general, although our focus here is on getting more people involved in monitoring committees, that it's wise to consider putting a monitoring committee in place, not just specifically for a single trial, but if a sponsor is developing an intervention in their ongoing concurrent related trials, then having that single monitoring committee in place to oversee the program for that intervention is not only more efficient, but it gives the monitoring committee broader access to related studies as it relates to understanding safety and benefit to risk. Um, and it then in turn allows us to be a bit more inclusive by having a somewhat larger committee and bringing in more expertise, obviously maybe more in clinical areas or quantitative areas, but as, as, as Dave and Janet were saying, in, on the ethical and patient side as well. You know, one of the things that I always liked about serving in that monitoring thing for the AIDS trials, we, we wanted our training to converge. If you were to eavesdrop on that committee at any particular time, it would take you a while to figure out who the statistician was, who the ethicist was, and who the, 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 uh, the AIDS physician was. They all knew enough about each other's discipline and respect that discipline that they could have a conversation that eventually led to, to a consensus recommendation, which is which is the goal. So that's the ideal. If you can get to that point, you have really you've really done something. And I think we achieved it in that network. Great, great point. And in, in, in the Allenberry Fleming Events textbook, written by either Susan or Dave, not my me. My favorite paragraph in that book was exactly what Dave said. You know you have a great monitoring committee when you're a fly on the wall, you're there and you're observing. And there's a clinician, an ethicist, and a statistician. And at the end of the hour, you don't know which is which. Doesn't mean the ethicist doesn't know the most about ethics and clinical clinician and about, about the clinical stuff and the biostatistician about the quantitative stuff. But we would like people to be broadly conversant about these areas. And 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 as a result, for the, as Janet, you would say, the data monitoring committee is not a collection, it's a collective where we bring all of these collective experiences together into a common a common position that the committee that will then take in its recommendations. One issue I'd like to raise before our time is up is that we have become somewhat alarmed lately about the documentation of trials. There's obviously the protocol, there's a statistical analysis plan, there's an informed consent document, but the document that seems to get lost and is rarely ever seen is the DMC charter. And as you well know, the charter contains sort of guidelines, not rules, but guidelines as to how the committee is to operate and has a great influence on how, how we get to the end of the trial. But that document is rarely seen. And so we have been, uh, we have a paper just accepted in the Journal of, of, of Clinical Trials calling for DMC charters to be made accessible through clintrials.gov. Now, we were working on a solution. It's not ideal, but at least it's a start. And so I, I think we will be able to move forward and at least make that available. Now, getting people to buy in is another matter, but I'm, we're hoping that we can shed some light on the DMC charter, which to date has not been the case. That's a terrific point. And another angle, as an editor, I could speak to this. We could ask editors and journals to say, as part of your acceptance to this prestigious journal, Jack Hartfield, where I was, but New England or Lancet, the supplemental material must include the DMC charter, which I know they're including CEC charters now and CEC definition, but maybe, that, maybe that's one way we get at it also. That would be fantastic. I can tell you it would be fantastic. We, we, we'll, we'll push that on the, 
I'm an editor emeritus. I'll push that on, and many of you are too. So, uh, one, one last really point. Before yeah, go ahead, Tom. And Janet was talking earlier about you know opportunities that we need to improve the DMC processes. This is surely one. And my sense, my own sense about this is that sponsors have often offloaded to contract research organizations the intermediary role, the role to basically facilitate the DMC process. And even if it's with best intentions, it's often without the, the depth of experience of understanding the critically important scientific and ethical considerations where the monitoring committee doesn't, as Dave was saying, it, we don't need a rule book. <laughs> this is, and Janet was talking about judgment as being really critical to developing recommendations. And so DMC charters are a really key aspect of what it is that outlines how we are going to proceed. And it is, as Dave said, not a rule book, it's guidelines. It shouldn't be specifically indicating restrictions on what the DMC should be able to see, uh, or that we start with an open session rather than in fact allowing for a closed session to come first, or that we develop our recommendations by voting. And I've said to people, why are you insisting on an even number of odd number of people? Because you have to have a vote. We can't have a tie vote. So wait a minute. This is not a political process. This is a scientific and ethical process where we're not doing our job if we, in fact, take a three to two and say we're done. We need to work together, understand each other, develop consensus. And in my experience, that's always been achievable to develop consensus. And so these documents, these DMC charters are critical that they are properly set up, as Dave said, as guidelines and not rules. And as Dave has indicated, and, and through efforts with clintrials.gov, if there can be more transparency or visibility of yes. these, it will be helpful in allowing people to see how they're done and also for an accountability that these need to be done in a way that are respective and enhancing the quality and the integrity of the ethical and scientific process. The other challenge to me, and we've actually written about this, is that I've said a monitoring committee can only be as good as the report it gets to review. And we know from experience that we've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly in terms of reports. And so and along with the education and training of the uh, sponsors about what's, what's necessary and the members as to what they should expect, we need to also train the statisticians and be alluded to as to what really constitutes a good DLC report. A 3,000-page report is not helpful. An NDA submission is not helpful. And Janet, you've talked on this. That job is going to lead to Janet as well. We're going to have another meeting here because I know our time is short. What Dave just mentioned is so important. And as a, as a person on monitoring committees who hasn't been a person who develops the reports, we're sitting here with Dave and Janet, who are absolute, remarkably strong leaders in the concept of the Independent Statistical Reporting Statistician Group, or the the, the statistical uh, the SDAC, the Statistical Data and uh, Analysis Center, that generates the reports. As Dave said, you're only as good as a monitoring committee as the information that you obtain, and as a monitoring committee member. Folks like Janet and Dave, who've been incredibly instrumental in providing the leadership for the ISRG and NSDAQ groups to ensure that they're prop they too need to be properly trained so that we get the proper information to committees to allow them to function effectively. Janet, please comment because you've yeah. you did a great I, lecture on this. I'd like to add something. Don't think as we're we're very enthusiastic about. DSMBs and how interesting they are and how much we learn from them and how much we enjoy being on them. Don't think they're not a lot of work. 
if you agree to be on a DSMB, you have a huge responsibility. And in my experience, people take that responsibility very seriously. Similarly, when you're doing writing a report, you have to understand what the data are. You have to understand what the disease is. And you have to put yourself in the mind of somebody looking at a report who has to make a recommendation about what to do with the study. So it's a complicated process that you need to go through. You can't just roll out a report. And that, I think people need training in that as well. Well, we, we certainly have enough for another entire commentary uh, on the uh, podcast, but I want to just wrap up by asking the panel here, the importance of diversity in the composition of committee members. This came up at our June 12th meeting, uh, Tom, and uh, you brought up some really good points. Why is it important to have a diverse committee members and, and train diverse members of our community in monitoring committee activities? A study is very complicated, right? And any, we're talking about trials where, where people are the experimental animals. And we're talking about a committee that's looking at ongoing data and trying to make a recommendation about what should happen to that trial. So it's important to bring in diverse views, diverse views medically, diverse views scientifically, diverse views culturally, um, diverse views intellectually. And that kind, because, because the trial itself is filled with diversity of all kinds. So I think of diversity in a very general sense. You want, you want input from lots of different people who, who can bring different views, but not so many different people that the com the committee gets unwieldy. David? Yeah, I think I would amplify what Janet said. You know, you need, it's amazing uh, how little you sometimes think you know <laughs> until you get on the line and realize all the different issues that arise that you didn't plan for and didn't prepare for. And so having that diversity of experience and intellectual background and training really does help, really does matter. And so it's, it's not like you're looking at a simple two-by-two two table and trying to decide is it significant or not. It's, it's that, that would be uh, unrealistic in a, in a clinical trial anyway, but it's, it's certainly not the case. We have lots of different issues and, wheel, and, and wheels in motion to, to, to deal with. So diversity is absolutely essential. Tom, any additional thoughts? Yeah, the great points by both. Good things don't happen passively, they happen actively. We need to realize that there's so much gain that we get from diversity. There's so much gain in terms of the synergy and the, the, the strength of what we learn as we are working together with colleagues who are bringing diversity in their backgrounds, both in terms of what their scientific or clinical or, or quantitative areas are, but also in terms of, of sex and, and race and other aspects of diversity. FDA and industry and government sponsors are properly becoming more aware now of more active attention we need to take actively in ensuring that we have proper diversity representation in the populations of the participants in the trial. Absolutely. And we should be doing the same on monitoring committees and monitoring committee members should be attentive to these issues. And I think as we build in the diversity of monitoring committee membership, that will certainly facilitate the insurance that the committee in its recommendations 
as it does. We have an organizational meeting at the beginning of, of every trial, and the monitoring committee, while it doesn't make decisions, the sponsor does, is in a position to acknowledge and recognize the importance of diversity and encourage the likelihood that we will have studies that are monitored by more diverse committees and that are ensuring that the membership participants in the trial are are optimally diverse. Well, that's a terrific conversation, a terrific way to wrap up here, because uh, what we're trying to do is to encourage our colleagues to say, yeah, I'd like to be part. I'd like to be part of a data monitoring committee. And, and, and gosh, uh, the ability to learn, to understand clinical trials, to be around so many smart people, it's a wonderful experience. But share in one or two sentences, Janet, why a young biostatistician or a young clinical investigator should really reach out and try to become part of the training and be, participate in DMCs. I don't know any better way of learning about this, the, a trial, trials in general, the specific trial you're in, of being on the DMC. Because in, in a short period of time, you're distilling huge amount of information and insight from people who are very thoughtful and very engaged. And so think of it as an intense learning experience where you learn and have responsibility at the same time. So it's a terrific experience. And that's why all of you who are listening should quickly run and join us. That's terrific. I don't know if we can beat that, Tom. Well, I would just say whenever I have an opportunity to share the passion about the importance of the role and the mission of a monitoring committee, I always say to the people that I'm talking to, I'm thanking you. Don't have to thank me. I'm thanking you. You're the future. Uh, we need you. We need everyone who's listening here that has an interest to visit the website, to, to, to take the steps to become involved uh, because data monitoring committees, the, the, the importance of the mission is critical. Um, and we need to have continued interest. You're the future. We hope that you will be um, motivated to follow through on additional didactic training and then, you know, basically to get involved in the mentorship aspect of actually serving. Um, and it's highly rewarding to be able to be involved in this process. And it's incredibly important, the contributions that you're going to make. Thank you all. David? Yeah, I would amplify what's been said. I, I, was, I would say that it's, it's intellectually challenging and satisfying to be part of it. And on top of that, it's very gratifying that the contributions you're making to patients in our particular role, I, I, I get a lot of satisfaction out of knowing that I've done something really good, either by helping a new drug or a product become approved or keeping one that's not effective out of patients. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Well, I just want to thank you, Janet, Tom and David for terrific conversation today. I can tell you that already a sponsor has contacted me and one of the three names of young women who attended the June 12th <laughs> mentoring uh, session to to begin to participate as young colleagues on DMC. So that's a success in and of itself. And we, we plan to do more here with that. So don't think that you all are going anywhere near retirement in the next five to 10 years, because we got a lot of people to train up. So thank you today for being part of the Heart Failure Collaboratory uh, podcast, Heart of the Matter, and uh, we look forward to more conversation in this space. Thank you.